Hi, my name is Leslie Bustard. Welcome to The Square Halo, a place for conversation with friends who have shared their ideas in our Square Halo books. In this episode, I will be talking with Bill Edgar, author of many books and a contributor to our It Was Good, Making Art to the Glory of God, and It Was Good, Making Music to the Glory of God. Dr. Edgar is Professor of Apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is also a jazz pianist. When I was in college, I was a pretty lost kid. I had a lot of questions. And uh, one of my professors befriended me, and he was a Christian. My brother and I were going to Europe on a bicycle the next summer, and he, he said, you really might enjoy my friend Francis Schaefer, um, because he's a very thoughtful uh, evangelical Christian, and, you know, he would have a great time discussing things. So, sure enough, it's a long story, but I w- went over there, and uh, my brother left to go home earlier than I wanted to, so I decided to go down to visit this friend, and um, I-, I discovered there a Christian community really. And uh, it was it was challenging to get to because you had to take the train down to um, Lausanne and then from Lausanne to Aigle and then take a cog railway up to Orlon. And then from Orlon you take the mail bus to Remo, which is this tiny obscure town halfway up the Alps. And there, uh, you get you have to ask the driver to stop there because he doesn't usually stop. And uh, so I got off and was met by these wonderful people. Um, all spoke English. Very few, well, most of them were not Americans. There were a couple. I rapidly got integrated into the community and um, met Francis Schaefer and had long sessions with him. And somewhere along the line, I became a Christian believer, you know, and my Harvard professor was absolutely delighted. He wrote me a one-word postcard. <laughs> it said, hallelujah. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I stayed there. My parents were moved to Geneva, you know, as I said. So it was easy to get to. And I... Um, went there as often as possible. You could go in different capacities. Um, Barb went as, my wife went as a helper. She stayed longer than I did. She stayed a year and a half. Uh, I went as a student. And so listened voraciously to these tapes, which is their main ministry at the time. It's now, of course, MP3s and things. But I uh, grew as a new believer there. And... um, they put me through a series on Romans and then a series called The Intellectual Climate and the New Theology and just listen to everything else. And so um, uh, just as a sidebar, um, I was introduced to Hans Ruckmacher, mm-hmm. who in addition to being an art historian was one of the European experts on early jazz. And I'm a jazz musician, a jazz lover, and he argued that jazz was not only compatible with, but owed its soul to the Christian faith. So I thought, wow, this is too cool. I mean, 
not only have I discovered the Christian gospel, but jazz is good. <laughs> and, uh, you didn't have to throw away your jazz records. didn't have to throw away my jazz records, as sadly so many people have done. So after I graduated, I thought I'd better go to seminary and find out more about what I ventured into. So for various reasons, a bunch of us went to Westminster, and uh, there we studied under Cornelius Van Til and Paul Woolley and Ed Clowney and E.J. Young and some of the great founders. Most of them were still alive. One, one or two were gone. And um, so I cut my teeth um, on this theology at Westminster. So then, I mean, it's a long story cut short. Uh, we we got married, Barb and I, and um, we had a brief stint as, a, as church planters, and it wasn't very good. So in order to put bread on the table, I um, put out my resume to different schools. We'd been quite involved in a youth work called Focus, which is an outreach to independent school kids. And um, it was sort of natural for me to look at a school job. So I, the one that turned up uh, and where we stayed for eight years was in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, I taught French, philosophy, music, coached soccer, and uh, we had a second child there, and our little family burgeoned. And then um, we accepted a call to Aix-en-Provence, as they had asked. They wanted somebody who could teach apologetics, spoke French, and who had a Schaeferian, Vantillian point of view. So they scoured the planet, and they came up with me. Um, so we went over there in 79 with our children. My parents were living in Geneva, so that made life easier. In fact, it made it wonderful, because we were able to be close to the parents, and they could visit their grandchildren. Um, so I taught apologetics there for eight wonderful years, had a jazz band. We became in charge of the Sunday school program in our church. We created a curriculum. Lots of stuff, things happened. That sounds like a very rich time. It was a rich time. Um, so then, um, for all kinds of reasons, uh, Dad retired. He decided to move back to the States. They had kept a house here. They were, our parents were aging. Barb's parents were, were aging and dying off, and mine were aging. And Our kids had decided to do their higher education in the States. Um, so for various reasons, we, we decided to move to the States, and this opening came up at Westminster Seminary, and I've been there for 31 years. I know you've traveled with Ruth Naomi Floyd. Yep. So I've been a pianist uh, of some sort since I was a kid. Majored in music in college. Um, have almost always been in or run a jazz band. Um, it's definitely an avocation. I mean, they tout me as a professional jazz musician, and which means that sometimes I get paid for playing. But uh, when I compare myself to the to my heroes, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not there. 
but it's been very fulfilling. Uh, I told you I started off comparing this, the disciplines with Hans Ruckmacher, who wrote a book on jazz. It's actually going to be republished in October. It was a groundbreaking book on jazz, blues, spirituals, and the connection of that to the Christian message. So I've always uh, believed that and worked on it. And um, one of the joys of our life has been um, to travel. Usually we travel as a trio. My full band is five people, but um, we usually travel as a trio. So we have Ruth, Naomi Floyd, the vocalist, and then a bass player, and then me on piano. And uh, we've been on tours for an outfit um, called um, the Christian Leadership Forum. No, even uh, European Leadership Forum. You're at ELF, ELF. And so they've sent us all over the place, including Eastern Europe, and we've had great response. And then the other outfit that we've sometimes worked for is UCCF, which is the British InterVarsity Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a college ministry. It's really the only viable one that I, that I know of in Great Britain. So every year we've gone to a different university and done a mission. And uh, I don't know, we've been to York and Newcastle and Cambridge and Oxford and the typical pattern, we go there for a week at a time. The typical pattern is Sunday we'll play for a worship service. Monday night we'll do our full program, which is um, an hour and a half where we go into the history of jazz and uh, relate it to the gospel. And then Tuesday through Friday, we are the house musicians for these missions and the man who has been the most consistent speaker and leader is a fellow named Richard Cunningham who is the staff head of UCCF and we're very very close friends he loves Ruth he loves what we do Um, so every year we go somewhere Um, the highlights Maybe two two of them I can mention, but they've all been good. Uh, one is at Cambridge University. We've been there a couple of times, and um, we play to a full audience in uh, one of their evangelical churches there. So if anybody says England is going into decline, I, I invite them to come to, it's called Stag, St. Agnes, no, St. something, St. Andrew the Great. Mm. And there's six or seven hundred students, you know, listening to the gospel and our music. And we've had Oz Guinness and um, Tim Keller. And uh, the other highlight really has been London, which we've done twice. Uh, there's a wonderful evangelical church there called All Souls, uh, the minister of which for many years was the dean of evangelicals. Uh, John Stott, who's in heaven now, mm-hmm. but he was a very dear friend, and um, All Souls has been the seat of a large London mission, and uh, again, five or six hundred people, students from every university come and 
hear the gospel there and they listen to our music and so um, we've um, just enjoyed that Ruth is a considerable she's one of the great vocalists of our time but she's also a considerable composer and uh, so we, we feature a lot of her music and she's uh, just finishing a um, musical celebration of the life of Frederick Douglass and um, so we've been using that material and um, so um, yeah that's my I'm secretly disguised as an apologetics professor but I'm really on the bandstand so you've written for us for the It Was Good, Making Art to the Glory of God. And actually, I feel like you were one of the people who gave, like, people would find out that you were writing for us and be like, oh, Bill Edgar's writing for you? Okay, I'll write for you too. That's, that's pretty cool. So foolish. you <laughs> opened doors for us. So you honestly have always been, for these past 20 years, one of my heroes. Because honestly, we got this book going and then... Our book publishing company keeps going. It's 20 years on, so I have always been very thankful for you. Praise the Lord. In the opening statement of your essay, you say C.S. Lewis said that the Christian writer should have blood in his veins, not ink. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you mean by that? What did he mean by that? Yeah. What does this look like? I think his burden was that writing should be excellent. It should be done by people who love words. And only secondarily is there a message, which it'll come through whether you want it to or not. Uh, And many aspiring Christian authors put it the other way around. I'm a Christian, I want to get the word out, so I'm going to write a novel. And he was very adamant against that view because um, he wanted literature to be uh, literature and not a... A propaganda platform for for anything for the gospel. Uh, now, and it, it happens that in, in his case, the gospel comes out loud and clear. But it's always through a story, through words, through poetry, through you know. And even in his Christian apologetics books, where he is speaking directly about the faith, um, it's not an in-your-face come to Jesus which is a fine thing to do. It just wasn't his gift. Um, but it was a, an exploration of the deep reasons why people ought to take ideas seriously. So when he said, you know, Christian authors ought to have blood in their veins, he meant they need to be human before the, the they are uh, doing some sort of preaching in the guise of literature. I was really drawn to that, yeah. thinking about that as as I teach seventh and eighth graders about writing, and Do you're you? working on some mechanics. Yeah. But at the same time, we're also reading Lewis and we're reading Tolkien, and we're enchanted with their words. So I thought this is very true when you look at Lewis's life and what he was doing. Your essay weaves together the problem of evil, Brahms' life, and his wrestling with evil and hope in his music. And then you also look at African-American music and Arvo Pert as examples of others who have wrestled with the problem of evil, or as you say often, the question of why, while also leading us to hope, to the hope found in God. Would you please discuss how being 
either an optimist or a pessimist is not adequate in how we wrestle with God and the question of why. Because that's something that you you touch on, you open with this idea that people are either optimists or they're pessimists, but really that there's a biblical framework to be thinking through that doesn't really fit either being an optimist or pessimist. Yeah, thank you. Um, my uh, little stick is that, um, strangely enough, um, optimism isn't bright enough and pessimism isn't dark enough. Mm. Uh, the optimist, you know, the person who sees the glass half full, um, pessimist half, dem- half empty. Uh, the optimist believes we're in the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears this might be true. <laughs> um, and the biblical approach is that optimism is weak because it's a kind of bright, shiny, bubbly attitude about life, whereas the hope that transpires out of the Christian gospel um, is, a, is a joyful hope rather, as I put it, than a happy hope. Joy for me is something that is far deeper than happiness. Um, Joy means you've been through the valley of the shadow of death and you've emerged on the other side and you have a reason to rejoice. Happiness usually means you've worked yourself up into a kind of pleasant, joyful, happy framework, but it's not, it hasn't been honed by suffering and then parallel to that pessimism even the most dark human writers like Nietzsche or Sartre cannot convey the deep dark um, reckoning with a sinful broken world that you find in the pages of scripture so, um, yeah, I, that's a little kind of phrase that I try to play with. And then um, Brahms is, is a fascinating, enigmatic um, genius whose music, I think, exhibits both uh, the, the real darkness of sin and the true hope of the gospel. There are people who feel that he wasn't positive enough about the gospel, and the evidence for that is that, you know, he didn't use the word Christ in his requiem and so forth. I don't think that's true. I think um, his, his positive outlook was uh, the product of great suffering and also of the belief that there were answers. Um, You get this most perhaps in his double motets where um, he declaims uh, biblical texts or subjects and um, one of my favorite, I used to sing this in the college choir is Varum, Why? Mm -hmm. Which comes from the early pages of Job. And Job asks, why is light given to those who are in misery? In other words, why did I have to be born? And uh, he four times the motet hauntingly um, cries out, why? But then in the interim, it 
gives answers from biblical hope. And uh, I think that's the real Brahms. We, some people wish he were a card-carrying evangelical, and he just he wasn't that. He was um, a wonderful Christian who, whose art transpired. The same thing you were mentioning earlier about C.S. Lewis. He had um, he had blood in his veins, and uh, I've always been drawn to him. And uh, in the essay that I wrote for you. Uh, I spent some time on the Second Symphony, which has a lot of brightness and then very dark moments where I try to bring this out. And um, and then it's a natural transition to some of the music of African Americans. I know. You're jumping ahead. I have all those questions. All right, I'm so glad that you remember your essay oh, yeah. so well. Actually, we were just talking to Carrie, my our oldest daughter, and she, we were on the phone while we were traveling from Lancaster to here, and I was telling her what we were going to talk about, and she goes, oh, Brahms, he was moody. But that was one of my favorite <laughs> piano pieces oh. that I could never master the way I wanted to master it. Mm-hmm. And so she goes, now I have to remember what that piece was and go find it. How does Johann Brahms help the Christian and the artist understand what it means to wrestle with evil and to find solace and comfort in the presence of God? Yeah, well, Brahms um, defined his calling as, number one, to reflect the true depths of German music going back to the Baroque and to Lutheranism. So that's one of the reasons why he's uh, so contrapuntally brilliant. But number two, to be modern and to address contemporary issues, but without some of the uh, bravado of, let's say, Wagner, who disagreed with them. And um, this shows forth in a lot of his music. Uh, just take the Requiem, one of the great masterpieces of all time. Um, the second movement is a, is a meditation on all flesh is as the grass. It's hauntingly powerful to remind us that we're on our way down, we're going to the grave, we're going to die. And then suddenly there's a bright spot that occurs at the end of it. And I, I think this is um, quintessential Brahms, you know, just he's submerged in uh, the darkness. He, he called them pinions, just like the eagle's wings that beat evilly over him. And then he could fly out of it uh, because of his outlook on life. Um, so he helps me in the movement from misery to, to joy. And he does it musically. Um, as I say, people had wished that he could have been like Bach and just the gospel was there. And I think he was like Bach, but he was a 19th century product working in a medium that was um, all around him. Um, you know, he had a tough task. He, he was the heir to Beethoven. And the question everyone has had was, 
could he possibly write a symphony after the ninth? Mm. Well, he did. The first symphony is a total masterpiece. Um, it's his own style, its own language. It's not trying to be the ninth. But um, he was declared to be the successor to Beethoven because he he was able to write these uh, these four symphonies and so much other other music. Um, your daughter said he was moody. He he was. Uh, he he had uh, today we might call it serious psychological issues. Um, famously, when. Robert Schumann died. Clara was deeply in love with Brahms and wanted him to marry her, and he couldn't do it. And he had all kinds of reasons, you know, I wouldn't wish my life on a woman and so forth. But it was one of those very tragic 19th century stories where, um, you know, they both died celibate. And uh, so there was deep unhappiness there, you know? And... Uh, he, instead of escaping from it, he he worked through it and was able to be um, joyful in the end. When I was reading your essay, I thought, oh, I really need to go back and really start listening to Brahms. Good. So while I was reading and I was thinking through what we would talk about, I was listening to the first symphony mm -hmm. and then moving on to the second symphony mm -hmm. and knowing a little bit about this idea of wrestling with evil and darkness and then the light coming in. There's just one little way to open up. I could move beyond just saying, oh, I'm enjoying that part or I'm not enjoying that part yeah. as much. It gave me a language. I know I need more vocabulary to understand him a little bit more, but it helped me. Because I've always been drawn to Brahms, but this has enriched yeah. me in how to think about what I'm listening to. I was drawn into wanting to know more about his life with your quote, when you quote him in a letter to a friend on the birth of his son, his friend's son, and you say, one can hardly in the event wish for him the best of all wishes, not to be born at all. <laughs> then you say that you say, oh, maybe he was shaken out of a bad mood. He continues the letter. May the new world citizen never think such a thing, but for long years take joy in May 7th and in his life. Um, and you add, it would be hard to find a more apt summary of the paradox of Brahms' life, one which pervades his music well. This idea of... Uh, part of me light. wishes I were dead. Part of me is going to not wish such a thing. Yeah, the second symphony is intriguing because, um, I think I mentioned this, <clears throat> it's very bright and pastoral. But right in the first movement, in measure 34, I think it is, for no reason, no apparent reason, the kettle drums start rolling and he brings in the trombone. You do mention yeah. that, yes. And that's an instrument uh, representing Dies Irae, the judgment of God. And uh, some of his friends, even his admirers, said, why, why, you know, you don't need this, why did you do yeah, it? Yeah, can't you take it out? Yeah, um, no, he said that belongs there. Um, it's like storm clouds, they go away. But... Um, that's the kind of mood he set. You know, he was one of the greatest talents ever to come sit behind the piano keys or, or conduct the orchestra. It's a famous story um, uh, where he goes to meet with Robert Schumann, who was the uh, 
musician of the day, the great romantic. And Schumann asks him to play something. And Schumann declares him the young eagle of Germany. <laughs> no pressure, mate. <laughs> right. Uh, um, but he, he did have that extraordinary innate talent. It was, uh, it's just a, a gift. I know a few musicians, very few, from whom music exudes. And there's just, there's a resource of musicality there that uh, is inexhaustible. And he had that. He was, he was one of the greatest melodists of all times. So he, uh, like Mozart, he just exuded great melodies and he had a huge sense of rhythm and his orchestration was f flawless. He, you know, I, you don't want to apply the word genius easily, but if you did apply it, he would qualify. But you also talk about not only that, what his expertise and his talent, but his drive and his desire to be a good man. That his he wanted his music to parallel or be connected to that he was living a good life. Yeah, like uh, some musicians, but not all. He wanted character to transpire transpire through his his music. You know, there were some talented musicians who could just whip off a piece and really impress you. Like Liszt, I think, is one of those. It's incredibly impressive stuff. But it doesn't come from the depth of someone's soul the way uh, Brahms' music does. So, yeah, there's still work to be done on, on him. There's a Brahms Society uh, that meets every year, and um, they explore all kinds of aspects of his music and his context and so forth. And I, I, th I don't think we've begun to plumb the depths of who he really is, hmm. which is a compliment. Yes. But you also, you discuss this idea about how conductors and other musicians at the time, and even church leaders, they were taken aback by how he would point the listener to God, to God's presence, to worshiping God, to lifting hands up to the Lord. But he didn't land on Christ. Um, you, you say in your essay that, that this pivotal event in history of Christ's death and resurrection, we don't see Brahms circling around that. Um, his comfort comes from God, but maybe, but he doesn't bring up Christ. And that even one, I don't remember which one, but once something was being performed and they decide to put a oh, yeah. Bach piece in the middle yeah, of it. That's the Requiem. So talk about that a little bit more. You know, Brahms, um, in addition to whatever his theological convictions were, which is very hard to discern, had a, a problem, a challenge, that came from the era that he was born into. And that is that much of the best music had ceased to be liturgical music. Even Mozart, when he wrote a lot of sacred music, it sounds like opera in a church. Um, it doesn't direct the soul upward to heaven the way Bach does. Brahms believed that music could do more than that, but um, he, he didn't believe or didn't practice the idea that it was liturgically uh, the path to take. So he wrote these, I mean, the Requiem, it's not a liturgical piece. It's a piece that it's appropriate to perform it in church, but 
it's a it's a concert. It's an oratorio. It's it's not um, music that you pray through or confess your sins through. Or um, and so he had to decide, you know, what path to take, and he chose the path of uh, these remarkable um, concertos, motets. Uh, oratorios and so forth but um, these are masterpieces of pure music rather than you know what it was in Bach's time which was aids to worship as it were Bach did a lot more than that but so um, I think that's one of the reasons that, that Brahms is sometimes accused of not being fully Christian um I, I think he was a marvelous Christian um, and um, but he didn't compose the way the typical Christian liturgist would and you can wrestle with whether that's good or not you know it's a, it's a good question to ask does all Christian music have to be liturgical can, can Christian music be um, concert hall music, <clears throat> um, or you know, church oratorios that aren't set in you know the liturgy, sacraments, and so forth. I think that's a very legitimate question, and uh, I don't think there's any one answer to it. I think many people are rightly called to do liturgical music. Um, you know, John Rutter and others they. Their music is really to guide the worshiper th- to to worship. But um, Brahms, I think, wrote to reflect the glory of God and to draw the soul up to heaven, but not through church liturgy. Well, I've been grateful to listen to these ideas because I have not thought about putting... I had not had language to put Bach in that area and to say Brahms isn't doing what Bach was doing. So I hear you saying Bach was more of a liturgical music. Mm -hmm. He was doing it for the church. Mm -hmm. Brahms was in a different area. He Mm -hmm. was doing it for a different audience or for a different even building um, where Bach's music would have been in a church. Brahms music would have been where would that have been? Concert hall. Um, hall. If it was in church it would have been a great performance rather than um, you know an invitation to uh, to worship um, it's partly just a different in, difference in the age you know the 19th century was far more secular than the 17th particularly in, in Germany mm-hmm. um, and partly just a difference in calling Bach uh, was first and foremost a church musician he did write so-called secular pieces when he was in the court at Kürten it was a reformed court and they didn't have church music and he wrote his Brandenburg concertos and so forth so he could he could do it as good as anybody but uh, his major commitment was in Leipzig to uh, guide the people in worship to write cantatas that brought the gospel to light, the passions and so forth and um, he was a he was called 
to lead the people of God through music. It happens to be the greatest music ever written. But that's that was his calling. Even Handel, his um, parallel, whom he never met, um, while he had some of the same chops as Bach and wrote in some of the same genres, he was a, a, an entertainer in London and he wrote these glorious oratorios, you know. Um, and even the favorite piece of so many, the Messiah or Messiah, um, it's not really, a, it's not liturgical, you know. So, um, but Bach would have been shocked if we had suggested that we just listen to him for pleasure. I, I, you know, I play on my machine, I play uh, Bach cantatas all the time. I think I would have shocked him. I mean, in a living room? No. You don't do that. We do this in church. Yeah, you go to church. So worship. Worship, yeah. But Brahms wouldn't, would he be shocked if you were no, listening to him? No, less, in the living I think, room? less. You're like, yes, you need to be listening to this. <laughs> of course, they all would have been shocked with our uh, stereo devices and things. but And listening to them alone and not <laughs> right. in the community. That's right. With other people. That's exactly right. So your essay moves then, and you discuss African-American spirituals, and you make a connection, especially thinking about um, the question of evil and hope, the why. So how did you come to making those connections as you move from Brahms to the American, the African-American music? Yeah, it's a bit of an artificial connection because they come from s- such different places. But like Brahms, enslaved Africans asked why and how long. Mm-hmm. Um, they did it through spirituals and blues. But um, uh, their spiritual quest was similar. You know, why are things broken? Why is this foreman whipping me every Monday morning? And um, their answer was in... Um, it happens for many of them in the Christian message and uh, comes out in their spirituals and later in jazz. So, and they do point directly to Christ more than Brahms does. You know, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Mm -hmm. Um, So, I think there's a natural connection. The, The the genesis of the music is from the same spiritual quest. The result, of course, couldn't be more different. Uh, German um, polyphony and um, hollers from the field. But mm-hmm. still, it's, it's, there's a legitimate parallel there. But then you make a connection with Arvo Perrot yeah. as well. Yeah, I may have tried to put too many things together there. Uh, similar genesis um, you know from Estonia under communism but very different uh, style in his answers he's known as a minimalist he didn't like the title much but uh, his typical um, choral music is pared down simple 
uh, building over a long time with more and more intensity, usually accompanied with bells because he loved tintinabulism, which was um, reminded him of the call to worship and so forth. So like in his uh, declamation of Out of the Depths, um, you know, it's it's one of the great psalms. And uh, he makes you feel like you are totally buried in the depths. And slowly but surely, by God's grace, you can climb out of this thing. And uh, by the end, you're praising God and... You know, so it, it's. I think the three. I may have been trying to do too much. You know, Brahms, spirituals, and Parrot. Uh, but it's just to say that um, no one tradition has a corner on uh, wrestling with with evil, and that works for the visual arts, poetic arts, and not just music. Will you end your essay saying this, perhaps because there is so much confusion and hostility in the surrounding culture, followers of Christ have been tempted either to retreat into tribal safety or worse, to lash out in a winner-takes-all fundamentalist assault on the enemy. The reason is simple. We don't quite dare walk between the flames trusting that God can guide us and deliver us. We refuse to admit the tension and the ambiguity. So you said that 20 years ago, but it still rings so true. I still agree with myself. So yes, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, what my intention there was to say that um, so often, and not exclusively by any means, but so often Christian art, Christian music, Christian poetry, is either just escapist, you know, things are hard, come to Jesus and they'll be easy, or uh, private in a in a wrong way, where you cultivate attitudes of resentment against the surrounding culture, and both of those I think are are wrong, and they lack not only courage, but they lack love for our common plight in as humans. And so, in my naive way, I think this music can help us to walk through the flames, to you know handle the challenges. Um, humbly and courageously and to avoid those twin errors of optimism and pessimism. Mm. Thank you for listening to The Square Halo. You can download a free sample from the title we discussed today by visiting the podcast page at squarehalobooks.com. In art, a square halo identified a living person who was considered to be a saint. Square Halo Books is devoted to publishing works useful for equipping and encouraging today's saints. I hope you were encouraged and will join me again for other conversations.